Gone for a while. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'll turn there, in Matthew chapter 22, I'll give you a little summary of what we've covered so far. Very interesting how the human mind works. I knew I'd miss somebody in my prayer, and I couldn't remember who it was. It was Leroy Howard. He was in the hospital, so I do want to pray for him before we get started. Lord, we lift up Leroy to you. He's got uh, a problem with his uh, prostate, and uh, it is a bladder. bladder problem, and it's a very difficult situation, and uh, painful, and we ask, Lord, that you relieve this, the pain that he's experiencing. Uh, we ask for a miracle on his behalf, that this problem be solved, not only the pain, but the problem itself. Help Jan to have comfort knowing that you are in control. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew is a gospel that focuses on the kingdom of God, and Jesus is now finished his ministry of healing and teaching, and he has entered the city of Jerusalem, and it's what we call the last week of his life, sort of Passion Week. And he's been in Jerusalem for a couple days, and he has had some confrontations with the Pharisees who are trying to trap him and get his followers to turn away from him. And they've not been successful. So today we're going to pick up at Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23. Okay? So last week, the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus unsuccessfully. This week, we see that the Sadducees try to do the same thing. So we're in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23. Now look what it says. The same day. Now this would be like Tuesday or Wednesday before Jesus dies. Okay, this is his last week. And they're still trying to trap him. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. Now, for those who have been with us in this study, we realize a couple things. Is that Matthew is writing to an audience uh, up in Syria. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, probably a church or a group of churches in that area that have uh, learned to live with each other. Jews and Gentiles in Christ living together. Their relatives don't like it. Their neighbors don't like it. But they are doing it. And he's writing the Gospel of Matthew, 50 years after these events take place. So when the Pharisees came to Jesus, it was about 30 A.D., the last week of his life. But Matthew's not writing about it until like 86 A.D., 50 years later. That's why Matthew has to explain to his readers who the Sadducees are. So why does he have to say the same day the Sadducees, look, who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus. It's because the people that he's writing to 50 years later probably have never seen a Sadducee. They've never met a Sadducee. They've, some of them never heard of a Sadducee. It's hard to believe that by 86 AD they had never even heard of a Sadducee. I remember... Well, I can tell you what happens even now. I'll ask people, well, who was Billy Graham's song leader? And everybody would say it was what? Foot Barrows. I say that to my students, and guess what they say? 
I'll say, who's Billy Graham? And somebody will say, they've never heard of Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham, you know, ministered up until about 15 years ago, but my students are 18. They've never seen Billy Graham. They see these old clips of Billy Graham. They know Billy Graham's 93. They've heard of him. But they've never really heard him preach. They're not impressed with Billy Graham. They just think, who is this old guy? That's just the way they think. And so the Sadducees are a group of people that these people have not known. Now the Sadducees and the Pharisees are as different as night and day. The Pharisees were laymen, very pious, and they were separatists. They would not rub shoulders with sinners. The Sadducees were just the opposite. Uh, they uh, knew how to work the system. They were uh, associated with the temple. This is very important. The Sadducees were associated with the temple. And they worked hand in hand with the Roman government. They helped the Roman government collect taxes, for example. And uh, they were connected politically and economically. And by the time, now listen to this, by the time Matthew writes his gospel, 50 years later, that temple that the Sadducees were associated with has been sacked. It was destroyed in 70 AD. And guess what happened to the Sadducees? They passed from the scene. The Sadducees were extinct by the time Matthew writes this gospel. And that's why he has to explain who the Sadducees are. Now, most of us, when we read this, we don't think of these terms. But you need to realize what's going on. You know who the Sadducees are. You know why you know it? Because it's here in the Bible. But they didn't know who the Sadducees were. And that's one of the reasons that he has to explain who they are. The Sadducees only believed that the first five books of Moses were inspired and authoritative for their life. They didn't believe in, you know, Joshua. They didn't believe that the Psalms were inspired. They didn't believe Malachi was inspired. They believed there were only five books, the first five books of Moses that were inspired. Okay? So it says in verse 23, they do not believe in the resurrection. Luke tells us they didn't believe in angels either, and they didn't believe in spirit. They didn't believe that we had spirits. Uh, and Josephus, the historian, confirms all this. So what they do is they set this trap for Jesus. So look what it says. They came to Jesus and they asked him, verse 24, saying, Teacher, Moses, see, they believe in the five books of Moses. Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, and a practice known as the levirate marriage practice, where a deceased brother, if a brother dies and he doesn't have any children, his living brother has to marry the dead brother's wife to have a baby that will be named after the dead brother so his name will be carried on. And so this is the question that they're asking that has to do with this marriage to a deceased brother's wife. Now look at the trap. Here's verse 25. Now, here's the scenario. There were with us seven brothers. The first died after he married, and he had no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. Okay, that makes sense. But likewise, the second also died before they could ever have a child. 
and also the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also, meaning without any children. Married seven times, she dies also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now that's the question. In the resurrection, which one of these guys will she be married to? She was married to seven. Now, this question is a trap. It has two goals. Number one, to make Jesus look foolish. You know, in fact, it's to make the whole idea of the resurrection seem absurd. They said, ah, there's no resurrection. They come up with this crazy scenario. And they said, now let me ask you a question. Whose wife will she be? And here Jesus answers, well, she'll be, the, he'll, she'll be the third man's wife or whatever. He looks like an idiot. So they want him to look like an idiot. If he looks like an idiot, he'll lose some of his followers. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to trap him. Okay. Now I want you to notice in verse 28 that the question is not about heaven. Do you see that? It says, in the resurrection, which one will she be married to? So often people interpret this verse and they read right over the word resurrection and they impose the word heaven. And so I have people always ask me, well, will we be married in heaven? The Bible says something about that, doesn't it? And no, it doesn't say anything about that. This is about the resurrection. When God, Christ comes back and he raises everybody from the dead and he sets up the kingdom, the question is, Will there be marriage as we know it? And they're trying to trap Jesus. So let's see how Jesus escapes this trap. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, oh, this is a great one. This is a pretty strong statement. You're wrong. You're mistaken. Your whole premise is erroneous. Wrong question. You're mistaken. Well, how are they mistaken? They're mistaken on two counts. Look what it says. You're mistaken, first of all, not knowing the Scriptures. You're mistaken on a second count, not knowing the power of God. Not knowing the Scriptures, not knowing the power of God. And now Jesus is going to explain how they are in error and he's going to reverse it. First, he's going to talk about the power of God. And then second of all, he's going to talk about the scriptures. Let's look at the power of God in verse 30. Because, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, not knowing the power of God. Because, for in the resurrection, there is, they neither marry, men don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. Women are not given in marriage. But they are like the angels of God in heaven. He says, you don't understand God's power. When he raises from people from the dead, first of all, he's going to raise people from the dead. And second of all, his power is going to be such that they are transformed. Their whole body is going to be transformed. We're not going to have the body that we have like this when we get into the resurrection. Our body is going to be 
glorified, it's going to be transformed, it's going to be transfigured, it's going to be like Jesus' body. A kind of body that could walk through a door, a kind of body that could eat if it wants, but doesn't have to eat to be sustained. That's the power of God. You have limited God's power. You think, first of all, they don't even believe in the resurrection, do they? So why are they asking a question about the resurrection? Because they're trying to trap it. But they've limited God's power. He's going to change us. Now notice he says that in this resurrection, we're going to be like angels. Do you see that? Not that we'll be angels. I had a man a number of years ago in a church that I was pastoring when I was very young. He based his theology, I think, on it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Where Clarence was trying to get his wings, remember that? Clarence had once lived on earth and was a human, like George Bailey. But now he died, and guess what he was now? He was an angel. And uh, it doesn't say we're going to be angels, it says we're going to be like angels. Well, how are angels? Well, angels don't procreate. The number of angels is fixed. When the kingdom of God comes, that's it. The population is going to be fixed. What you've done with Christ throughout the ages will determine whether you're in that resurrection. And there'll be no need to populate the planet. Okay? Uh, the fact that Jesus talks about angels is also sort of a slap in the face of the Sadducees because they don't believe in angels either. So it's sort of a jive at them when he does this. So not only do they limit God's power, and their understanding of God's power, they're mistaken there. They're also mistaken regarding the scriptures. Now look at verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, now this is a meaning in the scriptures, what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God, and this is Jesus' conclusion, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now this is a quote from Exodus chapter 3. One of the five books that they accept as authoritative for their life. He says, you know something? You believe in these five books, you don't even read them right. Your reading of the scripture is very limited. It's very truncated. It's very narrow. You're not understanding it correctly. And his his conclusion is that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. God can't be the God of the living if the dead aren't raised and they're still in their graves. He'd be the God of who? The dead. But since there is a resurrection, He is the God of the living. And then He gives this final result in verse 33. Matthew does. He says, And when the multitudes heard this, this is all the crowd standing around listening, they were astonished at his teaching. They realized that he took care of the Sadducees about as easily as he took care of the Pharisees. And the Sadducees now sort of walk away with their head between their legs. So what we have is he, he traps them. They get trapped in their own questions. Now we come to the next encounter. Now look at verse 34, the next encounter. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Oh, God, now this is our opportunity to trap him, try to trap him again. So they're going to put their collective heads together. And they're going to try to trap him. Now look at verse 35. Then one of them, 
a lawyer, they bring out the big guns now, right? not just the scribe, but now we're talking about the lead scribe. We're not talking about the justice, we're talking about the chief justice, you know, that kind of thing. So this is a man who is a, considered a real expert in the law. It says, verse 35, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question. Look what they're doing. Testing him, again trying to trap him, saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And if he says, well, commandment nine, they'd say, well, what about commandment number one? If he said commandment six, they'd say, you know. They're trying to trap him. In fact, the Jews, there was a consensus among the rabbis that, you know, all the law was equal. The Ten Commandments, if you broke one, you broke them all. There was sort of an equality here. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to trap him. What is the greatest commandment in the law? So now we have Jesus' answer. Look what he said. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Basically a paraphrase of uh, Deuteronomy 6.5. Now when he says, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, he's not trying to divide human beings into different categories. We have a mind, we have a soul, we have a heart. You know, another passage says, with all your might. You know, uh, What he is simply saying is that you are to... Give God your wholehearted devotion. You're to serve Him without reserve. You're to love Him with your entire being. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now that takes care of the first four of the Ten Commandments, all dealing with God. No other God, you know, images and all those. Okay? Then look at verse 39. He says, this is the greatest, this is the first and the great commandment. In other words, that's the, first, that's the most important one. If you live for God, then you are committing the greatest commandment. And then he says this. You're keeping the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. He said we, we could even say it's equal to it. If it's like it, it's like it. He doesn't say the second is the second importance. He says, but there's a second that's just like it. Just as important. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You need to live a life that focuses on others. You don't need to be self-centered. You shouldn't be self-centered. You should be selfless. You should be sacrificial. You should be giving. You should be generous. You're to love others. Love is an action word here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, as yourself. This means that you need to love yourself. If you're going to love others, you have to love yourself. There's a problem that most people don't realize is that we really don't love ourselves. Christians don't love themselves. Now, we're selfish people, but that's not love. Okay. To love yourself, you have to have a good self-image. Psychologically. Just be psychologically balanced to love yourself. You have to have a good self-image of yourself. You have to see yourself as a person of worth. Because if you don't, you will not be able to love others. And then you have to have a good self-image theologically. Not only do you have to 
have a sense of self-worth psychologically, you need to have a good self-image. You have to love yourself correctly theologically. You need to see yourself as a person who's made in the image of God. Don't mean to say that. If you're going to love others as yourself, you need to have a correct self-image theologically, and you need to see yourself as a person who's made in the image of God. And when you do that, guess what you will do? You will see others and look at them as what? People made in the image of God. But if you look at everybody as sinners, oh, I'm just a worm, I'm just a sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner, but I'm a sinner. If that's where your focus is, then you look at everybody else as unforgiven sinners out there. And you oh, look at that disgusting. Look, that's what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees are self-righteous, aren't they? So what do the Pharisees do? They're self-righteous. They're pious. They're separatists. They won't rub shoulders with anybody. They don't love their neighbor. Who's asking this question, by the way? The Pharisees. Because of their theological image of themselves as self-righteous, God's only people, they won't have anything to do with sinners. But guess what Jesus does? Who does he eat with? He eats with sinners because he sees them as people of worth. He sees them as made in God's image. Sinners, yes. The image has been marred, but guess what? He basically sees them as people of worth. People that are worthy of being redeemed. People that are worthy of being loved. And uh, that's what we need to do. So, the first commandment, loving God with all your heart, takes care of the first four commandments, and then loving your neighbors as yourself takes care of the last five through ten commandments. And that's, so you have commandments that are vertical, and you have commandments that are horizontal. One dealing with God, love of God, the other dealing with the love of others. Okay. And the tenth commandment is don't covet what's your neighbors. Which is obviously, if you covet what's your neighbors, you don't love your neighbors yourself. You love yourself more than your neighbor. So you can see how those, this last commandment covers the last five of the Ten Commandments. And so then Jesus says this, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all the ethical teaching of the Old Testament can be summarized in these two commandments. Unfortunately, the Pharisees don't keep these commandments. They love themselves more than they love God. And they love themselves more than they love others. But Jesus sets the example. So now what happens is Jesus turns the tables on them. Now look at verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, still coming together, trying to figure out what to do in light of this response, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? What's your opinion of the Messiah? Because that's his first question. What's your opinion of the Messiah? <coughs> Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. The Messiah is going to be an offspring of David. And they were correct. He's a descendant of David. That's exactly right. And then Jesus asked another question. Verse 43 he said, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And notice that's a small 
small o-r-d, which means master. How does David then call him master? And when it says, how does David, look at this phrase, in the spirit, meaning when David writes the scriptures, when he's inspired to write the scriptures, why does David call his son master? In the scriptures, written by the Holy Spirit, why does David call his son, Messiah, master? Now, I have three sons, and I've yet to call any of them master. I just want you to know that. Maybe I'm in the flesh and not in the spirit when I do that. What did he write in the spirit? What did he write? When, where did he write that his son was his master? Look at verse 44. The Lord, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, said to my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That is a quote from 44. And so here, notice the words, my Lord. The Lord said to what? My Lord. Who is his Lord? Who is his master? His son. Right there, he says it. See? There he says it. Okay. So now Jesus asked the third question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Just as he silenced the Sadducees, he silences the Pharisees. They have no answer. So they don't understand it. They say, he asked a question. Who is Messiah? They said he's the son of David. Question number two. Well, if he's the son of David, how can David call him Lord? The street doesn't call his son Lord. Uh, and yet he does in Psalm 118 or Psalm 110. So how does that happen? And they go... He's throwing them a riddle that they can't understand. Now the amazing thing is, Matthew's audience at 86 understands it very clearly. Why is that? Because that verse, the Lord, verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Within a week of these events, guess what's going to happen to Jesus? He's going to die. He's going to be raised. God's going to send him, he's going to send him up into heaven, and God's going to send him down at his what? Right hand. And then we will realize that he indeed is the Lord. So Matthew's audience can explain it, but the Pharisees, prior to the cross, do not understand it. That's why you need to always be looking at this, how not only what the events are happening in 30 AD that Matthew's writing about, but you need to think, well, how does his audience 50 years later comprehend what he's saying? And they understand better than the Pharisees this question. Even David couldn't understand it. He wrote it in the spirit. He didn't understand it intellectually that this guy he was writing about was going to be his offspring, would be his Lord. He didn't grasp it. But the Pharisees don't grasp it. David didn't grasp it. But Matthew's audience grasped it, and we grasped it. And then we come to this conclusion, right at the end of verse 46. Now watch this. From that day on, nor from that day on, did anyone dare question him anymore. Uh, he has escaped every trap. 
They end up looking foolish. They decide we're not going to try to trap him anymore. Instead, you know what they decide to do? We can't trap this guy. We can't draw away his followers. Let's just arrest him. Find him guilty of a capital crime. Turn him over to Rome. Have him executed. And we'll be finished with him. And so that is exactly what they do. They're going to get rid of Jesus. The remainder of Matthew's Gospel from chapter 23 to chapter 28 deals with the last two or three days of Jesus' life. All those chapters, the last two days of Jesus' life, and then the resurrection. If you look at chapter 23 and chapter 24 and chapter 25, and you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, what do you notice? It's all red. And in chapter 23, Jesus gives the woes. He judges and he says, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees. Chapter 24, you have the Olivet Discourse, the prophecy section. Chapter 25, he talks about the judgment that's going to come at the end of the age. Chapter 26, he's arrested. All that's his arrest. Chapter 27, he is crucified. And chapter 28, he's raised from the dead. And that's how the last two and three days of Jesus' life appear in the Gospel of Matthew. Next week we'll pick up beginning in Matthew chapter 23. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And we see the logic and the wisdom and the clear thinking of Jesus and how he could not be trapped. Uh, help us to have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. Help us to be wise. Help us to be filled with the Spirit. Help us to have a, a correct understanding of the law and a correct understanding of who we are and how we're made in your image. And help us, Lord, indeed uh, fulfill these commandments. Uh, help us to be people that live like Jesus, loving God wholeheartedly and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, this is our request. We ask that you grant it in Christ's name. Amen.